Let me invite you back in the room. And we want to get started with our, our sermon this morning. And so if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, if you're new to the Bible, if you're new to church, um, uh, if you're new to church, this is the portion of the service where uh, we have a, a teaching time out of the Bible, and uh, it's designed to be an opportunity for you to be exposed or to hear uh, the Bible and a short explanation of it. I don't know if short always uh, happens, but uh, that's the way it's supposed to be, short, I guess, relatively speaking. And, uh, and so if you're new to the Bible, uh, I remember when I first visited a church as a, as a non-Christian, uh, just seeking answers, I used to have to find the table of contents, and then once I found the table of contents, but it seemed like by the time I located the passage, I was confused by the numbers and the big numbers and the little numbers, and by the time I got to it, uh, it felt like the message was already half over. Uh, so First um, Peter... Um, is um, in the New Testament toward the end of the Bible. So if you open your Bible to the very end, you'll find uh, the book of Revelation, 21 chapters in the book of Revelation. And then if you'll just take a left turn, uh, maybe two or three books before that, you'll find uh, the little epistle, that's a letter, an epistle is a letter. You'll find the little epistle from the apostle Peter uh, to believers around uh, the Roman Empire. And so we're going to focus in on 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, in just a few minutes. Uh, just to remind you, we're in the middle, uh, the middle sermon of three in a series um, designed to answer the question, what is the church? What exactly is the church and why are we here? Um, the technical doctrine description for that is ecclesiology. What's the purpose of church? Why do we come here, and, uh, and why are we a part of this? Um, we start, we've just finished a series in Proverbs, and then in a few weeks we'll start a series in the book of Galatians. But during this introductory period, we want to answer this question, what is the church, and why are we here? Um, you may be asking yourself that right now. Why am I here? I don't even know. Uh, but, but that's what we want to answer over the next few weeks. And, uh, and, we're, and we're doing this uh, for a couple of reasons. This will form um, the content portion of a future membership class. If you wanted to become a member of this church, uh, one of the requirements is to go through a membership class. And it, this will be the content for that class. Last week, uh, today, the content today, and the content next week. And so it's an important topic and an important bit of content um, a lot of the content is coming from my systematic theology class taught by uh, Dr. Greg Allison in uh, seminary at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky uh, a few years ago. And it does have more of a teacher lecturing kind of feel. So uh, if you're new to this church, that's typically not how I preach, and I usually don't use a PowerPoint, and it's typically not as content-rich. Um, and that's just because of the way that my mind works. I am not as much of a teacher uh, as much as a preacher. And, uh, and so this is good content, and I can say that without shame because it's not mine, all right? Uh, it's somebody else's, and it's really good stuff. So I'm eager to get through it, or to get to it this morning. So we're going to read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 11 to get um, the overall view of 
what the church is. And so let's read together. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Peter's describing the church, and he gives a few functional markers, but he also gives a few identity markers. Who are we and what do we do? A couple of the identity markers. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are a people. And what are some characteristics of that new identity as the assembled body of God's people? Well, it says that we're chosen in verse 9. It says that we are royal on account of our adoption into his royal family. It says that we are a priesthood. What does a priest do? A priest stands in some sort of fashion as a go-between or as a mediator between people and God. And so as a royal priesthood, we help people who are not connected to God to understand and know who God is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says we're a holy nation that is a set-apart nation, uh, people for his own possession. Uh, other identity markers... He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And one of the marks of God's people is that we have, uh, we have received mercy. Now we are people of mercy, who have received mercy, and we give mercy. Christ followers should be some of the most merciful people there are. Uh, recently had somebody tell me, um, hey, did you know that someone is talking really bad about you in the community? Uh, and they tell me who it was and told me things that were being said. And I said, listen. That's not even the half of it. <laughs> if they knew half of the things, they're not even close to as bad as I am in my own flesh. They can talk all they want. I've received grace and mercy for who um, God, for who I am from God, and, and so it's not for me to be upset about that in any way uh, because I've received mercy and grace. Um, that's one of the markers of us as people is that we, um, we have received mercy and we give mercy. Uh, other identity markers, verse 11, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, that is that we're, we're passing through this earth. This is not our home. Uh, we are not to make ourselves at home in this culture or in this country or in this earth. We are to understand that we have a, a new home and that we're storing up rewards in heaven and that we're pursuing a king and a kingdom that is not yet manifested fully. Uh, those are some of our identity markers. He also gives us uh, some uh, functional markers. He says in verse 9, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. So the church is a people. Uh, the church has an identity that's altogether different and new than what it was before. And the church has some function. Um, and we're going to get into some of that uh, this morning as we, uh, as we look uh, at, to continue what we started last week. Um, let me start with this. Um, this is a book uh, I picked up a few weeks ago. 
And I don't know why uh, I started watching some show about um, search and rescue and missing persons. It was kind of one of those um, uh, Discover Channel kind of shows that describes people who get lost in the woods. And, and, and I got really interested in the number of people who show up in a search and rescue particular situation and the knowledge that they have as they go out and search. And so um, this is the manual called Lost Person Behavior, a search and rescue guide on where to look on land, air, and water for someone who is lost. Um, really lost. I don't mean spiritually lost. I mean like practically functionally lost in the woods or something like that. Um, what happens when a person gets disoriented? Even in familiar territory, uh, a wooded area or a desert area, even somewhere where they think they know topographically and, and regionally the landscape and the area and the trails. Has, has anybody in here ever gotten lost in the woods? I remember when I was in fifth grade or fourth grade, um, just getting completely disoriented in the woods behind my house. They're no bigger than 25 acres. It's a small wooded lot between neighborhoods, and I got completely lost, and it took me six hours to find my way out. And I came out to the entire neighborhood shouting my name, where, you know, looking for me, and, uh, and we just kind of kept following that. Some of the things that happen when a person gets lost is uh, it says that totally confused, and usually experiencing a heightened degree of emotions, the lost person moves around randomly, following the path of least resistance. That's called random traveling. Another strategy, strategy is if it's intended, it's not intended, but another thing that a lost person will do is called route traveling. They take a, they decide on some trail, and they just follow it uh, for as long as it goes. Uh, another is a directional travel where they pick, uh, all right, I think the sun was last over there, and they'll follow a sunrise or a sunset or a storm direction sort of idea. Another one is route sampling where they'll pick a center point where maybe three or four trails converge together, and they'll sample that trail for a mile or a period of minutes, and then they'll come back and do another and another. All of these strategies are things that people do when they're disoriented. He says one of the best things to do is called view enhancing, where you get to a high point uh, where typically you can get um, a cell signal or typically where you can just get reoriented to the landscape and you can pick uh, a, a memorable marker or something that you recognized before. That sort of view enhancing has some ability to get up above the trees and the rocks or the things that might be blocking your view, and again, an unobstructed view so that you can pick out the best way to go. Well, that sort of disorientation happens not just in, in life when we, when we get lost, but it also happens um, when we're involved in church or when we're involved in an organization, we can experience the similar kind of things with lost person, lostness, uh, and that is disorientation and a forgetfulness of, of where we are, why we're doing what we're doing. It's easy to get disoriented in the woods. It's easy to veer off track, um, even when we're in familiar territory. And so getting reoriented is necessary. Whether you're trying to get reoriented, it's intentional, or whether trials have come about in your life and it's shaken some of the foundations of what you thought you knew and what you thought you believed. Some of us have experienced that over the last 
15 or 20 years in our culture where things that we thought we understood, things that we thought were foundational parts of who we are as an American people, um, some of those foundations have been shaken, and it's caused many people to wonder, uh, to question everything. And so we're, we're, we're spending a few weeks to get reoriented about what the church is and why we're here. It's no secret, as we've described it over the past few months, that during the last two years, since just right around COVID began, um, we have seen a sifting in the body of Christ nationwide and even worldwide. That is, people who were uh, used to walk amongst us and in the church have stopped and are no longer walking with us. And it's because of that reality that we want to re um, uh, orient ourselves to some of these foundational truths so that we understand why we're here and we understand uh, what we need to do going forward, what our mission is, what our purpose is. Last week we started with the idea that the right belief leads to the right behavior. I drew a picture of a train and described truth and then actions and behaviors and then feelings and that we are a people who let truth drive the train because right belief leads to right behavior. Uh, I'll cover that again next week, but I don't want to get too bogged down in that. Today's point of today's passage is that I want us to understand not just a practical value of what the church is, but my hope is that you are reoriented and refreshed in your purpose for being a part of the body of Christ. When you gather with the church week in and week out and you don't have a clear idea of what you're even doing here, you will experience frustration as your expectations aren't met. I thought we were here to sing the songs I like, right? I, I thought we were here to, to hear about the, the books and the things that I like and the, to, to do the things that I'm used to. Well, if you're in for the wrong reason or you don't know why you're here, then your likelihood of being frustrated or angry or irritated or your dissatisfaction with the church will grow and you'll find yourself looking and shopping around for something that meets the need that you have. So we want to reorient to what the church is and what the church does. Let me pray for us and then we'll review some things from last week and cover some new material today. Lord Jesus, we start here with the idea that you um, are the head of the church. This is your body, and this is your bride. The church is people that you have purchased for yourself out of the world and assembled together. We thank you that the church is not a building, that you didn't die so that buildings could be constructed around the world. We are not meeting in a church. The church is gathered in a building. And the church is made up of people that you purchased by your own blood. With your own grace and mercy, you redeemed the people for yourself and that you've gathered them together. And so we thank you that this is your church. It's your body. It's your bride that is being prepared for the marriage supper of the Lamb that will take place um, in heaven. We long for that day. We look forward to it. Help us to understand your purpose for your church. Who is she and what is she to do here in the waiting time while we wait for you? Give us wisdom and discernment. I pray that all those who hear these words today would, um, would be listening just as carefully to the Holy Spirit and that they would be like the Bereans who are checking the word to make sure that what they're hearing is true. 
Give us that discernment and wisdom and speak to us today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So exactly what is the church? I want you to have an accurate biblical understanding before we leave here of what the church is. The word church uh, comes from a Greek word, a compound word called ekklesia. Ekklesia, uh, ek meaning out of, and kaleo meaning to call. So we are called out of something. The church, the word ekklesia, is the Greek word, and it means an assembly called out. So right away you understand that the church is people, not a building, and the church is called out of something, the world and the culture, uh, and it's called into something, into an assembly, into a gathering. Uh, there's a few realities to that. It's a gathering right here and right now. This is a church gathering, and it can't be an assembly if you don't assemble, all right? Um, you, many people are tuned in online, and so they're kind of here, sort of. They're watching this um, from their living rooms, whether they're sick or, or whether they're traveling, or for some of those reasons. That's um, okay temporarily for today or whatever. It's necessary, but it's not ideal. The church is assembled. It gathers together, and we fight toward isolation, where the enemy might want us to be isolated, but, but a church is an assembled gathering of people. And it doesn't depend on this room. It doesn't depend on this building. It doesn't depend on this microphone or these chandeliers or these TVs. Um, the church around the world could gather anywhere. Many churches gather in fields and in wooded areas. Uh, the early church met, met in homes. Um, uh, later churches met in catacombs and by rivers and in different places. The, the function of where it happens doesn't matter. Where it meets doesn't matter as much as who is gathered and what they're gathered around. Um, there may be a day, even in America, when a persecution breaks out and the gathered body of believers um, will have to inform each other, uh, maybe through word of mouth, hey, we're gathering in so-and-so's field at 6 a.m. and we'll gather secretly uh, under um, maybe persecution where we'll gather secretly in smaller groups. That could be a reality for us as it is for believers around the world right now. And so think about it. If you thought that the church was this building and then we couldn't meet in this building anymore as we did for uh, COVID, we met outside in the parking lot. And be because of the lack of a building space and air conditioning and, and some of the modern things that we have, um, temperature control, right, all those things, people might just say, oh, it's not worth coming to church anymore. But, but if your understanding is that the church is a building and we gather around the building, then, then you're automatically going to set yourself self up for frustration. But, but if the church is a gathered group of people, and they're gathering for the right reasons around the right things, around the right person, then it doesn't matter where you be. You can worship anywhere in the world with the right people in the right place at the right time. Um, that's a truth that is birthed out of the world. Ecclesia. It's a group of people called out to assemble together. Um, so understanding that, let's get back into some of the things we talked about last week. Um, that's so small. I don't even know why. Sorry if you struggle to read that. I can send these out and redo these later if that's so small for us. Um, let's go to the next slide. The church is the people of God who have been saved through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and have been incorporated into his body through baptism and by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwelling a new believer and the, the rite of passage or the marker of the new covenant is coming into a church through baptism, a public display 
of an internal reality. In the Old Testament, what was the sign of the Old Testament covenant that you were part of the people of God? Yeah, that's right, circumcision. That was a mark in the flesh that showed that you were a part of a new uh, group of people. In the church, our mark of belonging, uh, our symbol is baptism. Uh, the church is uh, made up of those people who have been called out of the world, saved through repentance and faith in Jesus. And the church consists of two interrelated elements. The universal church. The universal church is all the people who have ever been redeemed in Christ uh, and are a part of the church from Pentecost until the day Jesus returns. That's the universal church. Now, somebody came up to me last week with a great question. How were people before Jesus saved? And are they part of the church? It's a good question that you have to ask me later because I don't have time to get into it. Um, but the church is the people of God. The, the word church of the ecclesia that Jesus established even when we celebrate the Lord's Supper every month, it says this is the new covenant that I have set up in my, in my blood for you. So the church is a part of something new that God has done. It's the universal church. That is, the church is made up of the fellowship of all Christians that extends from the day of Pentecost until the second coming, incorporating both the deceased believers who are presently in spirit in heaven and the living believers from all over the world. But the church isn't just the universal church, it's also the local expression of that. The local church. The universal church becomes manifested in local gatherings characterized by seven things. And we're going to look at those seven things. We're going to continue those seven things um, here on the next slide. Uh, these are the seven things that make up the local church, characteristics of the local church. We are doxological, we are logocentric. We are pneumodynamic. Um, we are covenantal. Uh, we are. Um, sorry, my notes are so long. We are confessional. Um, we are missional. And then um, uh, finally, we are temporal, spatio temporal, eschatological. I'm sure none of those need to be unpacked. Um, Let's, let's take a minute and remind ourselves. Last week we only got through a couple of them, and they were some of the most important. But we are doxological. Number one, we're doxological. That means we are gathered for the praise and glory to God, and we are oriented to the glory of God for the glory of God. We understand, as we heard last week, that everything was created for the glory of God, so all things are oriented to the glory of God. Um, Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim his faithfulness. We are not gathered for our own glory. We are not gathered even for a purpose. We are gathered from the world for the glory of God and we are gathered to the glory of God. And so we have to be doxological. We come together to sing praise and to give praise and to give glory to God. And our lives should bring glory to God, not just on Sundays, but on every day of the week. Our life should reflect the reality that we are living toward the glory of God. That's what it means to be a part of the church. One of the attributes of the church is it's doxological. You think, well, I don't know why we sing, I don't know why we listen to sermons, I don't know why we respond, I don't know why we give financially, I don't know why we do some of the things we do. We do it, as Colossians 3.23 says, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And if there's anything in your life that is not glory-oriented, 
Or if it's false glory, meaning you're taking attention and glory from God and placing it on your own self, then you have a, a misalignment of being a part of the church. That was last week. Second part of last week is that we're logocentric. Logocentric means that we are oriented around the logos. What's the logos? There are two aspects to the logos. Logos is the Greek word that means word, right? In John 1, the word became flesh. The logos became flesh. That is, God became a person. God became a person. So we are logocentric, meaning we are oriented toward Jesus Christ, the word incarnate. Jesus was uh, God, and he became a person. That's what it means to incarnate. And the church is centered on Jesus as the living word. That's why we sing songs like that and say, you know, Jesus Christ, my living hope, and those kinds of things. We are logocentric, meaning we are focused on our shepherd and our head and the future groom. When a couple is getting married, I do a lot of premarital counseling. And in premarital counseling, I'd say we're, you know, we're, we're planning not just for a wedding. Um, you're planning for a wedding. A lot of brides are sort of wedding-focused. But I'm helping you prepare for a marriage. And a marriage is going to last a lot longer uh, than the wedding will, hopefully. Um, so in that, she's preparing herself for her bridegroom, right? She's doing everything to get ready to be married in the same way the church is being prepared for a wedding, for our wedding to Jesus Christ. He is the groom, and we are the bride preparing for that. The second aspect of logocentricity is the Word, the Bible. Um, if we're not going to use the Bible, we should just close the doors right now. Um, the Bible is what we gather around. It is always my intention. For you, as I preach, to be able to look down at a passage and say, I can see exactly what he's talking about. My, my points that I use during my sermons are, are often just right from the text, because I always want you to walk away with the sense that he's preaching a message from the Bible, and not just from pop psychology or some sort of a cultural seven steps to a happy life or something like that. I want you to see that we are gathered around the Word. If you and I uh, had a fire pit or something on a, on a Friday night and our families got together and we, we had s'mores, we would all gather around something in the center of us. The church gathers around Jesus Christ and the Word. That's our focal point. The third thing, and this is where we left off last week and where we'll start today, is the church's, one of the attributes of the church is pneumodynamic. Pneuma means spirit, and dynamic is what animates us. And so we understand um, that pneumodynamic, that um, the church is inhabited by the Holy Spirit. Those first three attributes are Trinitarian, aren't they? You have uh, doxological, gathered for the worship of God the Father. Uh, Christocentric, logocentric, we're gathered around Jesus Christ, for Him, to Him. And the pneumodynamic, we are um, empowered and anthem animated by the Holy Spirit. Pneumodynamic just simply means that the church is created, gathered, gifted, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Jesus said to his apostles, it's, it's good for me to go away from you 
this is really good for me that I leave. If I don't go, then the Holy Spirit won't come. Can you imagine hearing that from the apostles who walked with Jesus intimately and closely for three years? For him to say, it's good for me to go away. It's good for me not to, it's good for you and me not to be together anymore because I'm going to send to you a counselor, a helper, an advocate, one who will indwell within you the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Corinthians says that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So, the Holy Spirit doesn't just animate us personally, but as a gathering of people, the Holy Spirit is um, actively creating, gathering, gifting, and empowering the mission and work of the church. There are specific commands in Scripture about how we're to operate with the person of the Holy Spirit. It's not an it. It's not an energy force. It's not a universal energy. or any. The Holy Spirit is a person and a part of the Trinity. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the church has an, I mean, the Holy Spirit has an active role in the church, beginning with the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost. Remember when tongues of fire descended on the 120 in the upper room in, in Acts chapter 2, and, and they were able to speak in um, other languages and declare the glory of God to people all around um, that area who were visiting in Jerusalem? The Holy Spirit is one of the markers of the church. We, the church began with the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost. The Spirit births churches today. Remember Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that the Spirit is like the wind. You don't know where it's coming, you don't know where it's going, but it blows where it pleases. And in some ways the Holy Spirit is doing the same activity around the world where the concentrated effort and work of the Holy Spirit can be located in a geographic area. The Spirit births churches. The Spirit draws people and gathers people into a community. The Spirit gives the rightly gifted people into that particular fellowship. 1 Corinthians 12 says that all of these spiritual gifts that are empowered are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions each gift to each one individually as he wills. In 1 Corinthians 12, um, it describes uh, the different gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to uh, fellowship. Um, it says that um, for just as there is one body, and one body has many members, so all the members of the body are one, so it is with Christ. In one spirit, we're all baptized into one body. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? And if the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. Do you know what that means? That means that you have a unique purpose and contribution to the local church here. You have a unique purpose and contribution to the local church here. People often ask, how do I know if I'm supposed to leave a church? How do I know if my time is empty at a church or if I'm done at a church? Advice that I heard from a man named Grant Sheldon said, before you leave a church to go and make a difference somewhere else, ask yourself, is the place that I'm at right now different because of my contribution 
If not, invest more. The world doesn't need more people willing to go. The world needs more people willing to stay. He says, here are some questions I found helpful when processing leaving. A healthy goodbye says, did I do such a good work at that place that it will take others to replace me? Will the culture and the people feel relief? I'm sorry. Will the culture and the people feel the lack of your presence? Or will they even notice if you're gone? Are you leaving a place better than you found it? Will you be missed? Then he asked some other questions about an unhealthy deserting of a church. Will they realize when you leave how little effort you gave if someone can easily replace you? Will the culture and the people feel relief after you leave? Are you leaving everything in shambles? Will people be glad when you're gone? He says you're never going to make a difference if you're always starting over. And you'll never enjoy the view at the top of the ladder if you're constantly switching ladders. And he's making application here to some uh, to business as well. But he's also tying in some application to the church. And he's dispelling a myth where he says young people and others often believe you have to leave somewhere to make a difference. But he says, don't leave until you've made a difference. Often people leave and call it being faithful when it's actually that they're just tired of waiting on the fruit of faithfulness. John Wesley said, do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can. I don't think I've said can as many times in a row as I just did. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord and not for humans. So the point I'm making here with Numa Dynamic is that the church is built with you in mind in the sense that you have a contribution to make here. You should not be a spectator not uh, contributing to the healthy growth and uh, overall health and mission of the church. If you're not participating, then what you see lacking in a local church is what you might need to supply. You say, well, no, that's what we pay pastors for, right? That's what we pay the staff for. They do the work of the church, and we just come and, and spectate. That's a misunderstanding of what the church is and what your role is in the church. Numa Dynamic recognizes the biblical understanding that God has uniquely gifted each of you. If you're in Christ with a gift of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit um, empowers that gift. Again in 1 Corinthians 12, Now there are a variety of gifts, but one in the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them to, uh, to all and everyone. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. To each person is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So if you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwelling within you has uniquely gifted you with a particular gift or passion that only you can contribute to this local church as you walk by the Spirit. He gives some examples. For one person is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. 
So you walk up to someone, you need advice, and they give you just the right wisdom. Oh, you should do this. This is, this is what makes sense. Their unique gifting by the Spirit is to utter words of wisdom. To another, the utterance of knowledge by the same Spirit. I was thinking about you this week. And just this particular time, I felt like I should pray for you. That, that bit of knowledge, and they look back and they say, oh, it's just at that time that I was struggling with something. Has that ever happened to you? That understanding of knowledge is gifted by the Spirit. Verse 9, to another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues and languages. And to another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Now we're shy about those gifts of the Spirit because we've seen abuses of that. And you say, well, are we supposed to be speaking in tongues? And are we supposed to be interpreting? What about prophecies? Listen, I can sort all that out for you later. But the bigger picture here is that we shouldn't formulate our ecclesiology on someone else's abuse of it. Just because somebody else has abused the wrong things of spiritual gifts doesn't mean we should throw spiritual gifts out completely, but we should walk in the, um, the functioning pneuma dynamic that is an attribute of the church. Let's move on to four. Uh, the fourth one is covenantal. Covenantal is an attribute of the church, and that is that we gather in a new covenant with God. Jesus said when he instituted the Lord's Supper, this is a new covenant in my blood. God's relationships with people are always structured in covenants. A covenant is an agreement between two parties, and it's an agreement that establishes or formalizes a defined relationship between two parties, and there are binding obligations between those two parties. Biblical covenants are found all over Scripture. Right? You probably even know some of these off the top of your head. But they have these features. They're unilateral in that they're established by God alone. He initiates it. He's the one who establishes the covenant relationship. Number two, these covenants create a formal, structured relationship between God and his covenant members. Number three, they feature binding obligations. And number four, they involve covenantal signs or some sort of swearing of oaths. Some of the covenants that we find in the Old Testament are the Adamic covenant. That's the first covenant between God and Adam and Eve. You shall um, reign over the earth, subdue it, live in it, work in it. So he gave them parameters and boundaries. Uh, he told them what to do and how to do it. And then he gave his responsibilities as well. We have the Noahic covenant. That's between God and Noah's family and the created order. Some of the binding terms of that is, I will no longer what? No longer going to destroy the world with a flood. And the symbol of that covenant is the rainbow. There's the Abrahamic covenant. That is the covenant between God and Abraham, that he would be the patriarch of a great nation, and he would be a blessing or a curse to those surrounding nations. There's the Mosaic Covenant, or the Old Testament, between God and his people of Israel, 
after they left Egypt. God establishes a relationship with David in the Davidic covenant that one of your ancestors will sit on the throne forever. Who's that? Right, it's Jesus. Jesus fulfilled the Davidic covenant, the promises that God promised to David. But even before the ink was dry on the old covenant, God prophesied that the old covenant would fail because the people would break it. You remember in Deuteronomy, he said that right away, you're going to break this. And he said, what you need is a new heart. In Ezekiel 36, I will put a new heart and a new spirit within you, pointing to this, the new covenant that we are in. And so here we are in what's called the new covenant. The new covenant is based on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and it is fulfilled in the church. And so we are a covenantal people. We are uh, participating in a new covenant, a new relationship. Uh, it has the same features. It's unilateral. God established it. You were, in your sins, an enemy of God, weren't you? For he redeemed you. You were apart from him. But he established a covenant with you based on mercy and grace in Christ. Uh, it features a binding obligation for us who are a part of it. In Matthew 28, we're supposed to go and make disciples. That's part of our covenant obligation is to be disciple makers and to share the gospel. We are to be ambassadors for Christ, Paul told the Corinthians. As though we were pleading with people, be reconciled to God. Those are part of your covenant obligations to God under the new covenant. God has promised, he has bound himself to us, that he won't abandon us, he will not leave us, or he will not forsake us. He will not allow us to be tempted what we're able. He will give us all the resources that we need to walk with him. So in this unilateral relationship in the new covenant, there are things that we have to do and that God does for us. And this is the um, understanding of what it means to be a part of the church. But it's not just a covenant with God. We also have a covenant community with each other. When Jesus saves us, he incorporates us into his body, the church. So to be in Christ is to be the same act as to be in the church. You won't find thriving, growing members of the body of Christ outside of a local church. It always blows me away when people um, leave the church to walk alone, not to walk with other believers, but to walk alone in isolation from the church and say, I don't need the church. That's... Um, um, a breaking of our covenant community as Jesus has assembled us in the local church. He incorporates us into his body, the church. We disagree with people who are resistant to church but affirm salvation in Jesus. The covenant community with each other is the written covenant among church members that is a, an agreement that we will walk with one another. To be a part of that has high entrance standards. We have to be in Christ. You can't be a member of a local church if you're not first united to Christ through repentance and faith. You have to be in Christ. Um, some of the very first covenants uh, in organized churches listed responsibilities, to walk in a Christian way, to avoid sinning against each other, to pray for one another, to care for one another, to forbear with one another, to avoid division, to work to maintain unity, to meet together 
regularly, weekly, and whenever possible, and to support the leadership through prayer and working within the church. We find all those in the New Testament. It, if you just look up the two words, one another, you'll find a, a whole list of actions that we are to be engaged in in the body life. And all of that has local expression right here in this room. So if you're neglecting of those things, then there might be a misunderstanding of what the church is. Well, that's all we'll cover for this week. Next week, we'll talk about being confessional, missional, and temporospatial. Um, I know you're looking forward to that. Uh, like I said at the beginning, this is a content-heavy series, but we'll come back to it and refer to it often. Because if you misunderstand what it means to be the church, you might just think that we're gathering here to sing inspirational songs. And then you'll get in your car and you'll grade the service saying, I didn't feel any goosebumps. Or I didn't like the songs that the guy chose. Or I didn't like the way the pastor dressed. Or I didn't like the way other people in the room dressed. And, and you'll start to grade the church based on a misunderstanding of what the church is and does. So you'll start to gather thinking the church is here for you um, and, and that you're supposed to enjoy this. <laughs> Not that you don't enjoy this, uh, but, but we enjoy his presence that's what it means to be doxological. But if you have the wrong understanding of the church, then you'll grade the church wrongly. And listen, I'm not trying to say this for me or for this church. You'll continue to cycle through every church in the community, never understanding that the one thing you're most dissatisfied with, the most, the most common denominator in all of your movings around, is probably not those churches, but you. <laughs> I had somebody tell me recently, I haven't found a church within 300 miles that I feel comfortable with. Listen, that person's issue is not the church. That person's problem is that person. They are shopping for something that doesn't exist. Okay? The church doesn't exist for us. It exists for Christ and His glory. And if we're gathered for the wrong reasons, then we're always going to be unsatisfied, always seeking something that doesn't exist somewhere else. Well, Father, we thank you for our time together today. Uh, it's good for us to be reminded of these things as you have called us to not neglect the fellowship of the believers. So would you help us as we sort through a lot of information? Would you help us not just to be overwhelmed by information, but as lost persons do, would you help us to get to higher ground so that we can reorient ourselves to the church, and to the truth of what we are called to be and do for your own glory. And we're going to ask it this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.